This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Still, the two big pieces that President Trump wants to get done in his first few months in office are health care and tax reform. And while health care is, is on a shelf to a degree, some people continue to look at the importance of an overhaul to the U.S. tax code. And as part of that, the Penn Wharton budget model looked at some of the possible moves that could occur. Kent Smetters is faculty director of the Penn Wharton budget model, as well as professor in business economics and public policy at Wharton. He joins us on the phone, as does James Hines, Jr., who is professor of law and co-director of the program on law and economics at the University of Michigan. We take a look at uh, what the Penn Wharton budget model says and also what we may expect to see coming up in the weeks and months to come. Kent, James, great to have you both with us today. Hi, Dan. Hey, good to be here. Thank you. Uh, there have been so many things up in the air, Kent, but how much do we truly know at this point? Yeah, it's and, and, Unfortunately, there's a lot that we don't um, know in the White House plan. In particular, during the campaign, the president, uh, now the uh, well, then the, the candidate, he had a fairly specific um, plan um, that had a lot of details in terms of the corporate side as well as the individual side. Um, the newest White House plan really lacks a lot of specifications now on both. Side. The corporate side, lots of things have not been determined, such as um, something called expensing, and that is uh, how new capital or new investments are treated differently than, than existing um, uh, investments. As, uh, and that's a, that's a very big one that separated his White House plan from his campaign plan, which had that feature to it. And then even on the individual side, he talks about tax brackets. But it's not 100% clear what actual income yeah. those tax brackets uh, correspond to. Jim, how have you uh, kind of reacted to, I was going to say all of this, but to a degree, there's not a whole lot of the all there right now. Yeah, Kent is right about that. But I would add that there is one thing we know for sure, which is that the numbers don't add up at all. Uh, if you take the campaign proposals, right. because, right. you know, just lead to a huge deficit and of a type that Congress would uh, never continence. Um, with, the, with the more recent pronouncements, again, it's very long on whose taxes are being reduced and uh, offers virtually nothing uh, on the side of where you're going to make up the money. Um, Look, everybody likes tax cuts, but the problem is you have to pay for government. And so you've got to get the money somewhere. And uh, they've just been very short on where that money's coming from. Well, Jim, let me put you in that in that seat for a minute. I mean, if you're looking at the issues that have kind of been brought up where uh, taxes and the tax code are, are, are concerned, what are you looking at as maybe the, the important areas to focus on where we could potentially see some change that would be beneficial or at least kind of neutral, at least, to not have a significant negative impact on, on the country right now? Where there's largely bipartisan agreement is that we need significant changes of business taxes, Um you know, even President Obama proposed reducing the corporate tax rate from 35 percent to 28 percent. And, you know, Republicans in Congress and many Democrats in Congress agree that we need to do something on the business side because the U.S. Uh, business taxes are really heavy compared to 
Canada, Britain, Japan, you know, all of our competitors. So, um, so people agree we need to do something on that. The problem is, where do you make up the money? If you lighten the burden on business, then you have to make it back somewhere. And that's, of course, where Congress is stymied, because um, as soon as you say that we need to do something on the business side, then immediately the political forces are going to say, okay, how about individuals? You know, right. And then, well, if you cut everybody's taxes, including business and individuals, then the only thing you can do is to cut government spending. But, of course, Congress has proven incapable of that. Can't. Right. Can't. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And in particular, what our simulations show in the Penn Wharton budget model is that for we distinguish between the campaign plan and the new White House plan. Because the White House plan is not fully specified, we do it two ways, kind of a, our best guess and then a kind of an optimistic way, what we call revenue raisers, where it's eliminating certain exemptions and deductions, such as buying your health care pre-tax and um, some uh, state and local deductions and so forth. But even with uh, get, getting rid of some of those deductions that currently narrow the tax base, um, he's losing about um, 10% of revenue, and then it's even 20% of revenue if you don't get, uh, if you don't do those eliminations or various deductions. So what we find is that uh, in order, so of course the administration says, well, we'll get these positive dynamic effects. The problem is, is that to get the positive dynamic effects, you can't build up a bunch of debt in, in the, at the same time because that that works in the opposite direction of lowering marginal tax rates. And so what we find is that just to kind of break even in terms of economic growth, they're going to have to find a way um, under the most optimistic scenario of still cutting um, a lot of these deductions. They're going to have to find a way of cutting another 20 percent of federal outlays that exclude Social Security and Medicare. Those those two big programs uh, that President Trump has said are off the table for cuts. And so even in the most optimistic scenario, they're going to have to find a, a way to cut in another 20 percent in federal outlays, um, excluding those two programs. But I, I'm starting to hear more and more of the use of the word hybrid, Kent. And, you know, yeah. they're basically referring to some permanent changes, but some uh, short term changes. Uh, take us through that type of scenario and, and, and what we would be looking at. Yeah. I mean, part of that motivation there is really trying to work with the 10-year budget uh, window. And the idea is that if you make something permanent on a 10-year basis, it can look extremely costly. Um, And so that is, um, uh, you know, it's it's some of the gaming that happens with both um, Republican and Democrat administrations, how do you game the 10-year window. The problem with temporary things, like if you, have certain senates that are just temporary. That actually creates a lot of distortions because it creates a lot of movement of changes in a particular year. And then you just pay for it with lower investment and problems later on. Another thing that they've been talking about is companies can elect whether or not to go to what's called full capital uh, expensing, where you write off all your capital uh, expenses immediately. That's an idea that a lot of economists generally um, like because you can really stimulate investment and still have a progressive income tax. Um, or you can, um, uh, it means, but in exchange for that, you get rid of the deductibility of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the ideas is let's give companies choices. <laughs> um, they can elect which one. 
And that's like the worst possible outcome because that allows for lots of gaming, and um, you really have to kind of pick one or the other. Jim, how do you view this? Uh, it's One thing I would emphasize is that when we talk about eliminating deductions like um, uh, state and local tax deductions or the exclusion for employer-provided health benefits, um, those are tax increases. And yeah. those yeah. discourage economic activity in the way that tax increases do. You know, uh, the biggest so-called tax expenditure currently, annual tax expenditure currently, is the exclusion for employer-provided health, which is over $200 billion a year. But what, if you got rid of that, of course, you would raise more tax revenue. But the way you would raise more tax revenue is you would put a heavier tax on individuals right. who are receiving compensation from their employers. And let's be clear, you put the heavier tax on and the people don't have cash to pay the tax yeah. because they're getting you know, this benefit from their employer that comes in the form of employer-provided health insurance. So uh, that's what it is. And it discourages labor supply you know, because now you've got a heavier tax and it discourages business formation and it's got all the problems we associate with higher taxes. Of course, you have to pay for your government spending. If you're going to go spend the money, you've got to pay for it. And um, so some taxes are going to have to discourage economic activity. But it's not like getting rid of deductions is somehow costless. Same with the state and local yeah. tax deduction. That, too, is uh, if you got rid of that, it's not just that people in New York and California and other high-tax states would have to pay more. It's also that... Uh, you've put a higher tax on every additional dollar that those people earn. And so you discourage them from earning additional dollars by working harder, retiring later, starting businesses, you know, all the same thing. So it's like all this stuff is costly. We're, yeah. join, we're joined on the phone by uh, James Hines, Jr. of the University of Michigan, Ken Smatters of the Wharton School here at the University of Pennsylvania. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. We're talking about the potential changes we may or may not see regarding uh, the tax code, a tax overhaul. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Can't, I mean, there, there are two pieces to this, which obviously I think a lot of people recognize. One, as we have discussed, the business side of this and, and changes to corporate tax. Uh, but as, as Jim alluded to, the the other piece to this is personal, uh, and that's what a, a lot of the people that are listening to us right now are most concerned about and most, uh, you know, thinking about. Uh, and, and I guess the question is, at this point, when you're looking at the two of these, does one have more import than the other? Yeah, and it depends what you're focused on. Are you thinking just about economic growth, or are you thinking about distribution of income? And so, um, and often those things are you know, don't work in, in in the same direction, and it's a kind of a classic uh, a trade-off. So, if you're thinking about economic growth, typically we get most of the kicker out of tax reform on the corporate side, um, and it's not just about rates; it's also about whether you're going to do um, expensing. It's also the controversial issue um, of whether you're going to try to create tax parity between the United States and Europe through border uh, adjustment, an idea that I like but is not um, um, part of the Trump proposal. It was part of the House GOP proposal. Um, on the individual side, Jim is, actually, is absolutely right that 
most of the removal deductions can be viewed as a tax increase. It is true that some of those um, tax, essentially tax subsidies that happen in the current law, also the start behavior of people have larger health plans than they otherwise would have if they didn't have the deduction. Um, states and are incentivized to have higher tax rates because their um, citizens can have enjoy the federal deduction. But nonetheless, those distortions are likely to be, you know, not substantial. Most of the removal of those deductions are going to be just like a tax increase. And some of those tax increases would be, you know, fairly progressive in the sense that the home interest deduction, which is not on the table right now, but we know who enjoys that, that tends yeah. to be higher, higher income people. And some of them would be probably neutral or even regressive, such as removing some of the health care um, subsidies, although, you know, we do have Cadillac plans out there that are signs of some of the distortions that the current subsidy creates. Jim? Oh, I agree. I mean, if you're thinking economic growth, uh, it's probably the first line of attack should be business tax reform. And and again, there's largely bipartisan agreement in Congress that we need to do something on the business side. Right. Where the quibbling comes in are, you know, obviously over the details and also about how you pay for it. Because, look, most of the business reforms are going to wind up pulling in less money. And the reason that the business reforms are going to pull in less money is because U.S. business is heavily taxed now compared to, again, Canadian, British, you know, whatever. And so if you want to get closer to parity, it's going to mean lighter taxes. And if it means lighter taxes, you've got to get the revenue somewhere else. And that's where the fights lie. 844-942-7866 is the number if you'd like to join in. Uh, Jim, the the other piece of this, which, uh, at least on the personal side, uh, we're, we're talking about this at a time in this economy right now where uh, we're, you know, almost a decade coming out of, of the recession. Uh, we've obviously recovered a lot of jobs since, you know, the low points, but the wage growth continues to be a slow pace. So if we're talking about some of these changes, which could end up being, quote unquote, tax on people. And as you say, a lot of people are still trying to get by uh, from where they were, let's say, three years ago or five years ago at this point. It's not like we have seen unbelievable economic growth or, or wage growth for people where that may be you know, taken up a little bit in the slack. Oh, uh, you're absolutely right. Wage growth is a real concern uh, you know, in that we don't have enough of it. And it sure would be nice to have more. Um, and if you start hitting people whose wages are not growing with higher taxes, of course, that's putting strains on them. Uh, so I, I completely agree with that. I mean, here's the, the problem is that if you want revenue, um, you know, you can get uh, – it's hard to squeeze the high-income people that much more than we already do. Right. Uh, we've got pretty high taxes already on a lot of high-income folks once you add in all the medical taxes and everything else. And uh, it's not that you can't get more revenue there. You can, but most of the revenue potential is in the middle class and upper middle class because that's just where the big numbers are. Um, you know, uh, you could, uh, if you wind up taxing these medical benefits, as Kent points out, that's really going to hit some uh, people pretty hard in tough parts of the income distribution. So probably the game, if you need more revenue, but here's the problem. The Trump administration is not talking about new revenue, right. and Congress isn't really talking about new revenue. They're, uh, everybody's trying to avoid the discussion. So my worry is 
that because we don't want to talk about it, you try to slip in some elimination of a deduction, you know, in the 11th hour in order to make the books balance without really thinking that hard about who you're really uh, imposing these heavy burdens on. Kent? This is a classic trade-off, again, between growth and distribution, and that is, on one hand, you know, those who favor tax cuts will say, but, you know, if you grow the economy, then what happens is a lot of the labor slack that's in the economy now will be reduced and the demand for um, uh, even lower skill workers will go up. And so we'll get wage growth from that. And that is certainly not inconsistent with the models that economists uh, believe in. The problem is, is that at the same time, if you're doing it by creating very large um, deficits, that are really going to just work in the opposite direction. You may not get that growth to begin with. And then in the end, all you're going to have is something that you're not going to have much growth. And at the same time, now you just kind of whacked kind of the, the middle class or um, the lower income uh, people with uh, essentially a tax increase by eliminating some of the deductions that they have. You a moment ago uh, talked uh, briefly about the border adjustment tax, uh, and I want to get into that for a second because seemingly uh, when this discussion kind of comes around, border adjustment tax have become three of the nastiest words you can can bring up at this point. Take us into why you think a border adjustment tax of some kind would have some benefit. Yeah. I mean, at a high level, the border adjustment, without getting into all the, the nuanced details, the border adjustment um, uh, idea would create more parity between how the U.S., with its what's called the worldwide tax system, um, would uh, compete with uh, European-type tax systems, which are, are known as territorial taxes with uh, value-added taxes. And so it essentially creates more parity in those types of systems. Essentially, the way to think about it is that imports can uh, continue to, in France, imports pay the value-added tax. Exports get a rebate on their value-added taxes. Essentially, our system would, uh, with a border adjustment, would mimic that without having some of the other problems with just going to a straight territorial tax. A lot of resistance is in uh, you know, obviously uh, created from groups like Walmart and others who say imports are going to become more costly and therefore um, this is not a, a good idea. Um, it's the way I like to describe it, and again, I don't, uh, I don't think it would be good to go into all the details, but that they're basically confusing introductory microeconomics, uh, confusing the difference between walking along curves versus shifting the curves. The, the very first thing that we try to explain in, in uh, basic microeconomics. I mean, the only argument I've heard against the border adjustment that has some validity is in the short run, in some countries like Brazil, they have a lot of contracts that are denominated dollars, yeah. and they, they don't have an automatic trigger that there's an exchange rate appreciation that those are going to get revalued. Having said that, look at countries like Brazil, how much U.S. debt that they're holding, um, they're actually going to enjoy some of the appreciation because of all the debt, U.S. debt that they're holding. So that's not going to be, uh, don't get me wrong, the people in Brazil who would be in, uh, impacted through these short-term contracts are not necessarily the same winners in Brazil. So there's some redistribution that would happen in a country like Brazil. But these are really just kind of short-term um, issues uh, from a long-term perspective. This is how I think we should be 
thinking about tax reform. I mean, you only get a bite at the apple historically over every 30 years. That's right. you know, when we get tax reform. You really have to think long term. Jim, where are you on the border adjustment tax? Point out, you know, it's politically an anathema in Washington right now. Um, I do wonder whether a year from now, uh, whether that thing might be coming back. And the reason mm-hmm. is that when Congress takes a long, cold look at all the ugly alternatives right. and sees all the problems with them, which, by yeah. the way, there is no easy solution here. Uh, you're going to gore somebody's ox, uh, you know, with tax reform because you cut one tax, you've got to raise another if you're going to keep it budget neutral. So um, when they've looked at all the tough alternatives, they may well come back around to the border adjustment tax, but that process you know, will probably take a year uh, for it to play out. Um, it has, as Ken says, a lot of attractive features. Most of the attractive features are the same attractive features as if you had a value-added tax. Right. And it does raise the question of, if you like the border adjustment tax, why not just bite the bullet and have a value-added tax? Because you've got 170 countries in the world with value-added taxes. There's no problem about their uh, compatibility with the World Trade Organization rules and things like that. I mean, that is one issue with the border adjustment tax that I think, you know, is, I think, a really serious and unresolved issue is how it fits into international agreements, uh, because most people think that it's not consistent with Article 3 of the GATT. And what that means is that if we actually enacted it, other countries might very well get the authority to slap huge tariffs on the United States in retaliation. And until you get that figured out, I don't know how you can move forward on the border adjustment tax. It's not that you can't figure that out. It's just a lot of work, and I haven't seen any of it happening. Well. And part of the the issue here, James, is is that it's being you know publicized that uh, in terms of when Congress comes back, well, uh, realistically, you know they they would be back uh, after their August recess uh, around Labor Day, but there aren't that many days where Congress will be in session, especially you know both uh, sides, both the House and the Senate, uh, in order for them to get stuff done. So I mean, this is. These are major problems that need to be addressed, and we're talking about a Congress right now that it, that's really not in sync to try and get them done at this point. It's a fantasy if you think something serious is going to get done in 2017. It's just a fantasy uh, on tax reform. Right. I mean, they can, they're going to have to extend the budget ceiling, you know, the debt ceiling, uh, when they get back. And by the time they're done with that, uh, they... You know, they could pass a bill that nibbles away at some rate, you know, lowers it by half a point or something like that and call it tax reform. Right. But uh, other than that, I don't see there's I don't think there's any chance you're going to get anything serious done in 2017. Kent? I, I agree. The, the timeline doesn't work for a major tax reform. And if we look at the last one happened 30 years ago, the 1986 Tax Reform Act, and back when we had a process in Congress. I said, oh, get me wrong, there's still a lot of fighting that happened in Congress, but a lot less than, than now. It took a major bipartisan effort with both, you know, President Reagan and Tip O'Neill and uh, Gephardt and lots of other people on both sides kind of jumping off that bridge together. That takes a lot of conversations, unless you have a really strong majority, which Republicans do not right now. I mean, it's really hard to uh, just shove something through like this. And, it, and I think the, uh, Jen is right that what could happen due to a failure to get something done this year is that essentially 
uh, it strengthens the hand of Paul Ryan in the House. And, and Paul Ryan, um, if you look at the House GOP plan, um, it is much more sophisticated in design. It includes the border adjustment, things like capital expense, and it's kind of, in many ways, the economist's dream of how to do tax reform. Uh, there are some distributional issues. They're going to still have to find revenue or cut uh, government spending some places. But it's a lot closer to the mark of where a lot of economists would come down on, on these issues. And I think the more the, the delay happens, the more uh, House Speaker Ryan's hand increases. Great to have you both with us. Uh, thank you for your time, uh, Kent. Appreciate it. James, great to have you with us as well. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Kent Smatters from the Wharton School, uh, James Hines from the University of Michigan. By the way, if you would like to check out the uh, Penn Wharton budget model, it is uh, it is a rather interesting tool that uh, Kent and the other people here at Wharton have put together. You can check out the website, which is budgetmodel.wharton.upenn.edu. It l- literally lets you kind of be one of the people in the room there. Uh, in terms of what types of changes you would like to see on budgets, uh, whether that be, in this case, tax reform or a variety of other elements. Obviously, they did uh, health care uh, earlier this year as well. So it's a good website to check out, budgetmodel.wharton.upenn.edu. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 